session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolok, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get started, the book of the week for this week is Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has written many bestsellers like Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, um, and this is his newest book, just came out this past month, so I wanted to check it out and uh, look forward to sharing it with you on Monday's show. So wanted to start off today talking about an article I saw recently, and I'll talk about the article a bit, but also just talk about how we're getting our news or how we can be affected by the news we see, even though sometimes it might be less true or not as true as the news articles might try to make us believe they are. So I saw an article that said too much exercise can be bad for you. And that's the kind of article that jumps out at people. It involves exercise and health, but then also this counterintuitive message of could too much exercise be bad for you, something that most people don't think about. And then also I think it taps into part of us that Maybe we know we don't exercise enough or we haven't been consistent. So we like to see that, oh, maybe actually too much is bad. So in a way, it excuses us or makes what we're doing okay. I'm not exercising that much, but see too much of it is a bad thing. Um, So first talking about the article, then I'll talk about some thoughts on what we have to be careful about when it comes to headlines. So the article is talking about how too much exercise, and these were elite athletes who were asked I think, to go 40% beyond their regular working out, which was already pretty intense, I'm sure. Um, And then they measured them on different things. And one thing they did was they would test them on something or give them an offer of either something like $10 today or $50 in a few months. And if you are able to um, delay gratification and control your impulses, they think you should be able to prolong and ask for more money in that short amount of time rather than trying to get money right now. Um, And people who had exercised more, for example, were more likely to take the money in the short term. So, and there's other things, even other types of decision-making that might have been affected. Now, um, and this led the authors of the study to think about things like the physical fatigue it might actually also be similar to mental fatigue or have an effect on that. So if you're worn out in a way, or if your brain gets worn out from the exercise or the maybe in my mind, the self-control it takes, let's say, to do the exercise, that can affect how much willpower you have later on. We know that willpower is not infinite, or sometimes people think I have good willpower or I don't, but willpower can be like a muscle um, and that we can build it, but also that it can get depleted, that if you 
are trying to use too much willpower throughout the day, later on you might have a harder time um, controlling yourself or controlling your impulses. So the research itself um, is trying to understand better the effects of exercise, of excessive exercise. So the researchers, I think, are doing great in trying to understand exercise as this dynamic process and how it affects the body and how it affects it in different ways. Even there's research looking at how cardio cardio workouts versus weight workouts affect both the body and the brain. And I think, of course, that's great. The problem is when we come to spreading this information and the way that at times uh, news outlets and online services are trying to spread this information, we get very affected by the headlines and also they try to catch us with the headlines with sometimes misleading information. So I see a lot of articles being shared and posted, and the headline is very exciting. This parenting tip will make your kids happier, blah, blah, blah. Or if you do this, your relationship will have this effect. Or scientists find, and then something, and sometimes if you look at what they're saying, scientists have found, or sometimes even they'll say proved, which is something that scientists will very rarely say that we've proven something. Um, they'll maybe say the evidence is suggesting, or it seems like this is the case, but the people writing the article might write it as this, scientists have proved that having chocolate does blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, oh, chocolate? What does that mean? And then they want to read the, the article. Now, I also looked up some research showing how much we get affected by the headlines. So even if the headline says one thing and the article itself says slightly different things, we tend to remember the headline more than the information, the content. So that's if we read the whole thing. You can still be very skewed by that. So for example, if the article t headline says something like says, this measure is going to be bad for X, Y, and Z, but then in the article it shows information showing it could be good or bad, we tend to remember the information that was consistent with the headline better than the ones that were inconsistent. So it actually has an effect on what we remember about the article. What I think is even worse is even my own experience, if I go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, a lot of times I'm not reading articles, I'm just reading the headlines. So I see something that says, President Trump did blah, 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 or sources say this happened, or new study finds this, and I kind of just look at the headlines and, and scan through, and those headlines can become like conclusions to me when one, the article itself might not even be saying that, but even two, they might be cherry picking the information to fit a story that might be more appealing because you maybe have heard this term clickbait and there are a lot of these websites that they try to get you to click on the link to go to their page because they get paid on advertising but the truth is really all online activity is focused on clicks so they might not consider themselves at that level of clickbait where they're just trying to lie or manipulate you into clicking but really they're doing that at some level they're trying to get you to click on their article to go to their page. So, of course, they're trying to grab your attention. And unfortunately, what that means is sometimes when they try to grab your attention, they might lie or mislead you knowing that that's going to make you more likely to click. So it means, as easy as it is to say, but harder, I know, harder to do, that we have to be more mindful of the information we take in. And it reminds me of some things that came up in the book to have or to be that I talked about on Monday's show from Eric Fromm, that even when you are reading something, there's a 
having way of reading, which means you just take it in. And in the being mode, we're actually having a conversation with the writer and with the information. So we shouldn't just take things in. Even when you listen to me, I hope that you are listening, but also in an active way, thinking about what I'm saying. See what parts you agree with or disagree with or if you see differently, or if you think I have a certain bias that keeps showing up, you pay attention to that and actually evaluate my words, uh, not just as some kind of truth, but as something that's my opinion, has my thoughts. And, and even if you agree with some of what I say, you might not agree with everything. And so when we're looking at information, we have to be aware of the fact that we have these biases that are going to affect the way we look at information and also the way they're presenting it to us will affect it as well. And when I say biases, I mean, for example, if I say a news headline said, President Trump did X. Now, if you're pro-Trump and it's a positive thing, you're going to say, well, yeah, of course he did. He's great. If you're against Trump and it says something positive, you say, no, this article is wrong or stupid or biased, then you're going to see it in a completely different way. You won't even want to take in that information. And of course, vice versa. If it's against him and you're pro-Trump, you're going to think the media is trying to attack him. And if you don't like Trump and it's negative, you're going to say, see, this guy's horrible. He's so bad, blah, blah, blah. So the ways we take in information of course, get affected by our biases, but even worse, now we're seeing that the way information is being spread, it's very much rather than being some sources of truth that we all can turn to, there are many different sources that have their own agendas and play to different types of people with different types of beliefs and political leanings and all sorts of things. And so we're even not sharing the same types of information. And so this is unfortunately something we're seeing that people are getting even more entrenched and hardened in the way that they think about things, not open to hearing other perspectives and other sides. And they feel like they keep seeing information that confirms what they believe. So if they're a Republican, they keep reading uh, conservative-leaning articles that prove, quote-unquote, what they believe. And if they're liberal, they're going to see the same thing proving what they believe, even about the same issues, even about the same incident. They can have two completely different conclusions. And so coming back to the idea of articles related to psychological factors, we have to be better consumers of information. And even this means sometimes understanding better things like research methods and statistics. And I know when I was in both undergrad and graduate school, these types of classes are highly disliked and thought of as very boring and dry. And to a certain degree, they are. But I'm very grateful to have taken those classes because it gives me at least some uh, ability to evaluate information or research that I read with some of those things that I learn. And still, it's possible to be misled, obviously, even if you have that information, but it can help you. So that if you read a study and it says, um, study proves that these kinds of couples are better, and then you click on the study and it says they studied two couples, you say, well, that's not enough, obviously, people to study to understand a conclusion or it was completely correlational and done after the fact, how can they say this proves that this does this? Um, or various types of other things that you can look at. And there's a lot of research that doesn't really pay attention to these things. So just the thinking about the way we take in information is very important. And recognize that when we just stop at the headline, unfortunately, first the headline might influence us even if we keep reading, but even more, a lot of times the headlines aren't even what the article is about. So many times I've seen an article that makes some big claim that research is proving this or research is suggesting this. And then when you click on the article, you see 
that's very maybe a small part of what the article is talking about or one possible conclusion. But when they say it in a headline, we tend to take the headline as some kind of truth. And so we have to be careful about that as you're on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and you're just scrolling through your feed that you're getting affected by these headlines that you're seeing. And very often, if you actually look more into the issue, you'll see that actually what you're learning in that headline, first of all, is not what the article might be about, but also even if it is, there might not be a lot of truth to that. So we have to be better consumers of information. And coming back to this uh, study on exercise and if it could be bad for you to do too much, it makes sense. But like I said, my concern is a lot of people just see that headline and see th- see think, see, it's good I'm not going to the gym that much or I don't work out that much. It can be bad for you. Just like if there was articles saying too much water can be bad for you, which is true if you're having, and if you look at the research, it says they had people drink six gallons of water a day and had all these issues. But the truth is for most people, they're not drinking enough water. So they just read that article and they don't realize it's talking about huge, excessive amounts of drinking water, which no one is doing. And then they think, well, maybe I don't need to drink more or I can drink soft drinks or other things instead of water and I'll be okay, not realizing they're not having enough. Similarly, a lot of people will look at that article and think, oh, look, too much exercise is bad for you, so I don't need to start working out. It's not good. It's not that good for you. It even could hurt me. But they're not realizing that we're talking about passing certain thresholds that are too much. And they're looking into it sometimes even five hours a week of strenuous exercise could be too much or could be a good limit. Um, but I don't want to get into those facts or factors because I don't know them that well. But it's important to keep in mind that we don't get influenced in a negative way. Or too much communication could be bad for couples, which could be true if you're talking too much and too often about too many things and not having space, that can be a problem. And I think that actually can be a big problem. But for many couples and most couples I see, they're not communicating enough. So someone who doesn't like to talk about anything might read that article and say, oh, see, it's good that I don't talk too much with my wife or my husband. It actually could be bad for us if I do. So I'm going to stop doing that. So be aware of the headlines you're reading and how they're affecting you. And always, if you can, or I would recommend to go a little bit deeper, even sometimes, and I don't do this every time, but I try to click on the original article that the 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 original research article that the news article is about, because you sometimes see that the conclusions they're drawing are not exactly what the authors themselves of the study are saying. Or I've even seen psychologists or different scientists say that what was concluded from their study when they got interviewed for a certain news article was very different than what they even told them, or they bended it in some way to fit the narrative they would prefer to say, rather than sticking to the truth of the research, which is, of course, itself a big problem. So be careful about what you read. Be aware that you want to go a little deeper, be aware of your own biases of what you want to believe, because that will obviously affect what you take in and not. And we always have to be aware that we can be at risk of being manipulated or moved in certain ways. We just want to try our best to be as aware as we can be. All right, going into our first commercial break, we'll be right back. back let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air hello yes uh, are you with me yes i am thanks for calling okay thank you thanks for taking my call sure well generally my question is about our president uh whether or not we do or we do not agree with his policies there mm-hmm. are some characteristics that are very evident and uh which, well, uh, I guess it's uh, fair to uh, categorize him as uh, 
as a narcissistic personality disorder. So let me let me stop you there for a second. So. Um, sure. There's a lot of already. There's a lot going on in what you shared because, as uh, someone running this show, I have to be careful how much I get into political things. And also, sure. as a psychologist, there's something called the Goldwater Rule, which uh, is a little bit controversial. And I actually think it it should be controversial, meaning that we look at it more. But basically, it states that a mental health professional cannot give a diagnosis or evaluate someone that they have not personally interviewed themselves, and so. This leads to psychologists and psychiatrists having to be careful about talking about public figures, even political figures, um, although sometimes this is broken and there's in some ways maybe ways around it. And a lot of people are thinking that we need to revisit this rule, and I think we do, not that we should allow psychologists or psychiatrists just to give whatever diagnosis they want and take it as a truth, but that we should take the information that mental health professionals have on different people and recognize they maybe can help us determine what qualities make a good leader and what would not. And I even think just like uh, presidential, I think, candidates, but especially once someone is president, for example, they have to go through a medical, physical exam. They should have to go through a psychiatric and psychological evaluation to see if they're fit to be president to hold that office because it's so important and um you know so that's one thing and another aspect of this is unfortunately because of the stigma we have attached to mental illness people feel like they have to hide so much things that they have psychologically because if we for example find out a candidate has some anxiety issues people are going to think oh they're going to not be able to do anything not realizing that there's people with anxiety issues who are successful surgeons and successful everything, you know, or depression or whatever the mental illness is. It doesn't mean if you have any mental illness, you can't be successful or be good at something. Actually, all of us have some mental health issues, just like everyone has physical or me medical health issues. So there's a lot of things that um, are at play here. And now I know it seems like you want to talk about one specific uh, and very powerful individual at this time. But I'll let you know, I'm going to uh, maybe be more cautious about what I talk I about uh, because of some of those various factors. Yeah. But go ahead. My question is basically about two body languages uh, that I have uh, seen in the last uh, three years. And that is um, the way he sometimes wraps himself around his arms while, mm -hmm. while he's sitting in a, in, a, like, uh, in a room with other people and talking to a journalist or talking to somebody else, uh, how he wraps uh, his arms around his body. Does that, does that have any meaning or significance as far as um, like pointing or being pertinent to um, any, I don't know, I mean, it does, have, does it have any psychological meaning? And the other time that he was trying to drink water off of a bottled water, mm -hmm. and uh, he was like, it was a pretty small bottle of water, and he was holding the bottle with both hands. It's kind of like you know, something like maybe a, uh, without any uh, insult or anything, but that's something like a, a child would do and drink water. So, like, you know, it was very out of character for a gentleman at that age. So I just wanted to see if they mean anything or they signify anything or they have any psychological um, yeah. interpretation. Well, I think, you know, I'll, I think I, I'm a very analytical person. Sometimes even people around me say too much. Um, I do try to look at the underneath what's going on with myself and other people. But you also have to be very careful because... Um, we, are, again, have our biases. Now, just from what you've shared, it seems like you don't like President Trump very much, which is 
of course, you're entitled to that feeling and opinion. So you have to be aware that the ways you're going to see him might be affected by that. But also, I think there's a lot he does show that I don't agree with. So it's not that I'm saying everything he does is good. Um, but I think what's also important is we sometimes try to find these black and white rules. So you'll see, you know, body language expert is going to tell you what this person is showing us through their actions and their behaviors. And do our actions and our body language, does it reflect to things? Yes. But there isn't some, you know, almost like we can say a dictionary where you can define that if someone stands like this, they have to be this way. If someone sits this way, it has to be that. And so we're always trying to gather information. And we're doing this all the time. When you interact with someone, as much as we might not think we don't analyze, we're always taking in information. We might not always be aware of it that, oh, you know, I kind of like this guy or I like this girl or this person seems smart. And we're not maybe even sure what it is, but we, we feel things and we take in information. So we're always just trying to gather information. And you might notice, yeah, the way this guy is standing next to me is a little bit aggressive or I feel something. And you try to get in touch with that feeling. But you try your best also to sp- suspend judgment because it actually relates to what I talked about in the previous segment. But when we start to make a judgment about someone, so if you think, for example, not the case of President Trump, but just because I said aggressive, you know, you meet someone, you're like, this guy seems mean because of how he was standing next to you. And if you really think, yeah, I know that he's mean, I can just tell when you barely know anything about him, now everything he does will be seen through that lens. Or let's use another example. You're sitting with a friend and they say, oh, I see my friend across the restaurant and they're walking over. And before the person comes, either they tell you this guy is the nicest guy. He's such a good guy. Or they tell you, oh, this guy is such a jerk. He's just the meanest guy. No, I hate seeing him. Now, even if that person does the same thing, you might interpret him very differently. So if he comes over and says some jokes, if you're told he's a nice guy, like, oh, this guy's so pleasant and, and you know, personable and he made a good connection with us, he's so likable. And if the person tells you, no, he's a really mean guy, when he comes over and makes jokes, you might say, oh, his jokes were so offensive or they were a little bit too much or he was joking with us before he even knows us or whatever it might be. It's going to be very much affected by that lens. So I try to be careful to say that for sure, because he's standing this way, it has to mean this. Or for sure, if he's doing this, it has to mean that. Because maybe if I liked the person and they did that same behavior, I might either overlook it or think it's not that big of a deal or see it in some other way. So that's just something I would also add that I, I for me, the way he holds, let's say, the water, there could be something to it. But I wouldn't say that I for sure know that based on how someone holds water, I know how narcissistic they are or not for sure. You know, that's something we have to be careful about to say I can analyze how he held the water. I think it's interesting what you're saying to think about that maybe it shows something for you. You're saying childlike or maybe even you can feel like it's an aggressive way of holding the water or something. Um, But I'm, I'm not it's hard to make that conclusion that I can say based on that, I can tell you for sure he was this or that. Is there a reference um, book, or, or do you know of anything uh, uh, read-worthy about body language and, like, some signs and people who don't make eye contact? I've like read... Well, see, here's the thing. You know, there are, pro- there are so many. I don't know one that I can tell you for sure, but there's so many mm-hmm. books on that. Um, and I, like I said, body language, it, we do communicate a lot non-verbally, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes even in a manipulative way, people might do that. Like if you synchronize your actions with someone, like they cross their legs, you cross your legs, they 
stand up, you stand up or whatever, even small actions, they're going to feel more connected to you. And so sometimes people can manipulate or use that to manipulate. What ends up happening usually is unconsciously you'll see people, they start to mimic each other without realizing it. So you'll watch two people in a conversation and if it's going well, one of them, for example, crosses their arms and the other one crosses their arms, not even realizing it. Then they uncross and that one uncrosses. And so they scratch their face, the other one scratches their face. And that's something that we know it seems like the conversation is going well and they're being connected. But as far as there being books, there definitely are. Um, I'm not sure which ones I can tell you are ones to read for sure. But, you know, we, we're not going to get to a place where you can say for sure this means this or means that. And a lot of people will tell you they know that they can tell you three signs. Now, there's some things like, for example, if a man and a woman are meeting and the woman turns her body completely away from him, it doesn't take a, a PhD or a body uh, language expert to say that that seems like she's not interested. But, you know, that's the thing. Now, another thing you mentioned, like, for example, eye, averting your eyes. People can avert their eyes if they are um, anxious or they might avert their eyes, let's say, if they're hiding something. Or maybe in even an interesting way, now that I'm saying it, when you're anxious, you might be hiding something that like you feel like you're not good, so you hide. But it doesn't mean you're actually lying or hiding something bad. Maybe it means you kind of feel like you're bad. But so if you see someone avert their eyes, we can't say for sure, okay, that's a dishonest person. Or even for sure, that's an anxious person. Um, and the book I'm reading this week, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, he actually is talking about how we're very bad at detecting lying. And so even CIA officers or therapists, they're a lot of times not better than quote unquote laymen who are not supposed to be good at this, at detecting a lie. So again, it's being a little bit cautious that we can use it as information, but not think that there's some secret code that if we know that language, we're going to be able to know everything everyone is doing or really know people better you know it's it's something but it's not everything so i would just say be cautious even if you read a book and it tells you yeah. this is how you know people are this or that that take it with a grain of salt yeah i'm generally not a black and white person yeah. and i'm pretty uh, uh, my word's pretty gray mm -hmm. so um yeah uh, different shadows I, I appreciate it i think um you're very politically correct <laughs> Yeah, my question. You should be running for an office. Oh, maybe. <laughs> now you know. I think you didn't like my answer very much, but you know. Um... No, no, I loved it. I mean, I, I understand it. I mean, yeah. I totally respect what you said, and uh, um, it's not something that I, I knew when I called. It, yeah. I wasn't sure if I was well, you know, but I will tell answer. you. I will tell you this. Like I was saying, I um, you know, uh, a few people have written about this, or a lot of people do on online, because they feel that. It's not fair to say that because of this Goldwater rule, and that Goldwater rule happened in, I forgot what year it was, but uh, Barry Goldwater was running for president, and some, they did a really bad type of research where they surveyed some people, and the way they expressed it was really bad, but showing that he was really mentally unstable based on the quote-unquote expert opinion of psychiatrists and psychologists across the world, something like that. And because of that, it really affected his ability to uh, to be a candidate, and, it, and people felt this was unfair, so... The American, I think it was American Psychiatric Association, came out with this rule saying because of what happened there, you're not allowed to give any diagnosis about anyone you've never seen on your, in your, you know, personally. And of course, the funny thing is if you've seen them personally because of confidentiality, you can't talk about it either. So in a way, it made it that we can never have mental health professionals weigh in on politicians, which I don't think is good. Now, of course, with the world right now and how polarized it is, what can likely happen is if you make it that anyone can say anything, you'll have all these liberal 
um, psychologists and psychiatrists saying things that promote their side, and then the conservatives will say their side. So I think maybe if there was some kind of body that was bipartisan or had multiple viewpoints that actually worked together and also would look at these issues and look at candidates and evaluate them, I think that makes sense. And I think for a lot of people, it might seem odd to evaluate our politicians, but they're making decisions that affect the whole world or can affect at least some part of the world and very important things that we should do that. Just like you might want someone to get evaluated to be a pilot or to do something else where they have some power or effect on others. And so I think it makes sense and we we shouldn't be so unable. And so for me, when I look at some of the, the candidates or politicians like President Trump, I think, for example, I wouldn't say I can, I'm going to give him a diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder, but from the behaviors he expresses, you can't miss the narcissism in the behaviors. Now, does that mean it's a full-blown diagnosis? I'm not going to say that. But to ignore that, that things, you know, for example, that things become about him, no matter what the topic is, that if he's complimented, it seems that he'll respond very positively, whereas if he's criticized, he completely dislikes that person or whatever the thing is. Uh, There's a lot of narcissism that he displays that I think you don't have to, again, be a psychologist to see it. It's very black and white. So um, you, since you mentioned narcissism, when it comes to him, I think it, it's laughable to deny that. And I think any mental health professional can see that. Now, they might be aware of how they present it based on their political leanings and if they have a political agenda. But I think that, for example, is not something that you can miss. And so if you even just see someone talk, you pick up on some things. And we're all, in that way, armchair psychologists and psychiatrists noticing the behaviors of others. Um, and I think... We shouldn't make it so we can't talk about it at all. Um, but that's something that we still are trying to figure out within the mental health community, at least here in the United States. Thank you. I learned about Goldwater. I <laughs> yeah, look that. it up. It's interesting. If you read it, um, when I, I talked about the book Tyrannical Minds and Dean Haycock, who was very kind to be on the show via telephone, he talked about it in that book because that book was looking at different dictators and trying to understand them and analyze them, so to speak. And then there's some people that say we shouldn't even do that, but he was arguing against that in the book, but then gets into understanding some of these different dictators throughout history, like Stalin and Hitler, and some uh, trying to understand them psychologically, which I thought was quite fascinating. But yeah, yeah, if you look up the Goldwater Rule, you'll see more about that. Nice talking to you. Thanks for your call. I appreciate it. Take care. All right. Going to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Hi, thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call sure. at the time you are giving me. Um, I have been in a relationship for almost going on our 10th years, mm-hmm. which about a month ago we called it quits. But it's not as easy to, you know, we have a house together. It's a lot of other stuff. But then he, um, he offered maybe we should go to therapy. I uh, had a few questions for you, so hopefully you can shine a little light on this for me. Okay. Uh, How old are you? I am, uh, we are both in our early 60s. 60s, okay. Yes, we've been divorced. This is our second kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. The kids are fine. They're irrelevant to this, you know, uh, relationship at this time. They're fine. We see them whenever 
we can, they come over. So they're fine, no mm -hmm. problem on our, um, you know, family side, thank God. Mm -hmm. But it is just the two of us together. In the beginning, when he was approaching me, he came on very strong, very romantic. Um, you know, like uh, he would send me poems, and it was very romantic. It would make me melt. Mm -hmm. uh, but then within a few months, maybe the first six months passed, it was completely opposite and I was still, well, I was more affectionate and I would ask for it, you know, honey, I'd like you to tell me, you know, that you love me, you care for me, text me something. And then it kept going on for several years. At some point, I stopped caring. I didn't want anything from him. But then it's then I was thinking that, you know, this is not the way I want to live for the rest of my life. I'd rather to be alone if I have to be in a relationship. He is uh, that, you know, that I don't matter. He is very reserved. Mm -hmm. He is um, a very in introvert where I am the opposite. He doesn't have like a best friend. He goes home, he works, he comes home, he sleeps, and he does only a few things that, you know, he has set as a rule or a chore for himself. That's about it. If I don't come up with any plans or ideas, then that's, we don't do anything outside of a regular, normal days. Mm -hmm. But I want him to be, like I have suggested, like, you know, put a reminder in your phone every month, every other month, something, say something nice, take me out to dinner. Um, but I still get no response, nothing, and he doesn't even, uh, well, I'll, my question, is it too much to ask your partner that to show a little more emotion than you normally are programmed to? Uh, you know, I am very lost. I am. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how someone can be this way. Well, yeah, you. I mean, you. It seems like you guys are different, and I think what's also hard for you is that he's different from how he was at the beginning of the relationship, and very much. And it seems like you, although it's ten years, but you might have had this feeling of how do I get that back, because. Uh, he's, you know, for you, it's that he's clearly capable of it because he gave it to you, but now he's stopped. And so you can feel like he doesn't care. Or sometimes, unfortunately, people come to the conclusion, I did something wrong. I messed it up. Or if I do something good, I can get it back. Um, and, and usually it's neither one of those really, but people feel like they have to do something. I have to fix them or get it back somehow. Now, you mentioned he was very reserved, introverted, and he sees things, rules or chores. And, you know, so introverts, they do like alone time, but they also tend to like connecting with someone. They don't like big groups, but they'll often like being with one person or two people and getting deep. So he might be introverted, but it might not just be that, that he's introverted. He might just be more um, shut off a little bit. Like you're saying, emotionally, he's not quite there. And because emotionally... Uh, introverted people don't have to be shut off. Sometimes they're very deep, actually, but they don't like to be in big groups or big crowds as much as someone who's extroverted. And, of course, these things aren't black and white, but we're talking about tendencies. So it might not just be about the introvert part, although it does seem like you're seeing you and him as very different. Uh, but that's, you know, itself 
some something to look at. But I'm wondering, ten years, what was it that made you eventually say, okay, enough is enough? Because it seems like you were unhappy for quite some time. What changed or what led to that decision? A very good question. Um, I tried so many different things. Then I gave up on the romantic part. Then I wanted him to do like um, other stuff, do things, you know, like take me out to dinner or, um, I don't know, this is so funny, but that was one of the deal breakers for me too. Like, you know, I have an electric car. So he was, it was like a toy to him in the very beginning. He would program it, do stuff. And then every night since, you know, uh, it's a um, electric company, uh, peak hours, uh, you know, um, uh, under peak hours. So it has to be plugged in at 10 at night. And then he would go outside, plug it in for me. And then, um, so I, I, I was even happy with that. Oh, how cool, how cute. He doesn't want his lover, his partner, he calls me his wife, to go out at night this late. But then one, a couple of times I mentioned, he forgot it a couple of times. And then I mentioned, honey, don't forget to plug in my car. And then he said, well, you can do it yourself too, you know. So that was like, oh, my God, that's even so hard for you to do. Then I said, you know, if you are, if this is the hard thing for you to do for your partner and this is the way you reply and respond to a request or something, you know, that, that was like a deal breaker to me. So even if you don't verbally, you don't say anything. Uh, emo- uh, I mean, as far as being compassionate, you are not, you don't, hug me or touch me or beside, you know, once a week that we have, you know, uh, we, we are more intimate. And then even if you, uh, you know, and then you don't want to do anything financially, you are not any help. I mean, you don't do anything above and beyond what we, we have a joint account. Everything comes out of it. You don't even take me out to dinner, you know, beside my birthday. And that's about it. So that was what it was. So let me, you know, it's interesting. There's an analogy we can make. Um, you talk about charging the car. And if you read the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, he talks about how it's like we have a love tank that we need to get filled up. And like any kind of like a, like a gas tank, it's it needs to get refilled. It's not that just it gets filled and never has to get touched again. And so it's almost like this was his way of filling your love tank, at least in some way, maybe a minimal way of him doing some action, but I think it points to this bigger picture that you didn't feel loved by him. Your tank was empty or felt empty most of the time with him. Yeah. But I mean, I'm still trying to get after 10 years when you would tell him, for example, that you wanted more or you didn't feel loved by him, for example, what would, what would he respond? He would say, I am not very romantic. And at some point I said, you know, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to accept you the way you are. And I'd rather to be with you than being alone. Although on my own, I have a good group of friends. I have lots of family. You know, I can be so busy that, but it is better with a partner mm-hmm. than being without one. Okay, so, he, and then he would say, oh, I thought you were accepting me the way it is, I am. Uh, so these are, or at one time he said, you know, what's wrong with that? I said, you know, we're like roommates. He said, well, what's wrong with having a roommate? Yeah. 
Well, there's nothing. Well, there's nothing wrong with having a roommate if it's a roommate. But when you're romantic partners, you need to be more than just roommates. Um, and you know, accepting someone doesn't mean that we don't want or we can't ask for anything else. So if you accept someone, it means we're seeing who they are and accepting them. But it doesn't mean we can't say, even though you're not a romantic person, for example. Because I am, he has to also accept you as you are, which means he might have to give you some things that he might not be as comfortable with. So let's say you're wanting to see him in a romantic way five days a week and he wants zero days a week. Well, hopefully you can find some compromise where you're both accepting who you are and accepting that you're different. So I think it can be complicated for people sometimes when they think, well, accept me as I am means you can never express that you don't like anything I'm doing or want anything to change. And that's not the case. If we're saying accept me as I am means that if he's an introvert and you say, I need you to go to parties every single weekend, three nights a week, that's different. That's pushing him to become someone he completely isn't. But if sometimes you want a little bit more from him out of his comfort zone, that's not something that to me means you're trying to change him completely. And that's where we have to have some ability as partners to ask of each other to do some things or to give us something or to make some extra effort for each other. It's not that we just do whatever we want without worrying about the other person. It's like if you're cooking and someone says, well, accept the meal as it is. Now, maybe it's not fair for them to go say, go to culinary school or go learn a completely different way. But if they say, I like more of this ingredient or less of this, we can't say, just accept me as I am. Don't even say anything. So similarly, it's about how much we're asking our partners to change. It's not black and white, but at times we might want certain things. And what's also important is to express why it's important to us. So if we just say, be more this way, you need to be more romantic, that usually doesn't do very well. But if you say, here's how I'm feeling, and you don't know how good it feels for me when you, for example, come home one day randomly and bring me flowers. That makes me so feel so good that for a week I might be thinking about that, or whatever it might be. So it's more about expressing not that it's good to be this way or bad to be this way, but really making it about yourself and what you feel. This feels so good to me when you do X, or when you don't do it, I, I want to know, let you know how I feel. Or maybe even it brings up something from my past. As you get to know your partner better, you share about yourself so you understand each other better. Then they realize, oh, when I'm late to meet them for dinner, it reminds them of when their parents didn't pick them up from school and makes them so sad. Let me make a bigger effort to be early, even though for me being on time is not that big of a deal. But I see that for her, it's so important. So really, let me make that extra effort. And to me, that's not someone changing who they are. That's just being aware that we have different wants and needs and we try to accommodate each other. So, you you know, now that he's saying, though, he wants to go to therapy, that's something that might be worth looking at because maybe there's some room. Now, is it that he's afraid of just losing you? Because my concern is the way you talked about the beginning of the relationship, which is something that a lot of people do. And I talked about this Monday night looking at Eric Fromm's book, To Have or To Be, we sometimes look at our partner as something we want to have. We have to get them. So let me romance them or treat them a certain way. And then once I have them, well, that's it. Now they're my possession. I don't need to do anything to keep them or do anything more. That's it. It's I've done my hard work and now I just get to have it and enjoy it. Rather than realizing that when we love someone, it's an active process that never stops. You don't ever stop loving someone because now they've committed to you. You should maybe even more want to give them more love and make them feel good rather than feel like, well, 
I've got them. And so maybe you have that feeling that he just wanted to get you with the romance and the romantic poems, and then he stopped. Now, it could be that. It also could be the real vulnerability as you guys got closer was harder for him, and he shut down. Um, but whatever it is, I would hope that you give that a chance. Now, we're at a commercial break, but what I was thinking is that we'll talk after the break because of where you're at. It's been a one month since the breakup, and it seems like he's wanting to do couples therapy, and maybe you're a little bit on the fence. So after the break, let's talk a bit more about what's going on now, okay? Um, I reached my destination, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. I have to go to an appointment. I know your commercial break is going to be more than just a few minutes. It'll be about four minutes. So if you can't make it, then then you know, if, if I'll just give you that last okay. question. Yeah. I'll wait, I'll wait. Okay. Thank you. All right, sure. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back before the break We're with the caller. Let's go back. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. <laughs> okay. You. We, we, it seemed like we barely got you. You wanted to go to your appointment. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I text them. Hopefully, I said I'll be there in 10 minutes. Okay. Um, someone, I, I believe he's very rigid. Okay. You're talking, and okay. I don't said, know if you're talking about the therapist you want to go see or this, uh, your ex. Okay, no, go ahead. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's my ex, my um, boyfriend. He's uh-huh. very rigid. And um, and what you said, it is exactly what I have asked him, that I like him to come out of his comfort zone every once in a blue moon mm-hmm. and do things the, and what I like. But I have never had any uh, positive responses from him, mm-hmm. okay? Do you think, in your professional opinion, someone as rough on the edges at least and as rigid would is there any chance they will change at some point or they will look at things a little differently? Would they soften up a little with therapy? Well, it's it's possible. It's, it's tough. I mean, I, I think even when I'm thinking about 10 years, that doesn't seem great, although I don't know how you approached him or how your conversations went or even some of the times it seems like you gave up so you weren't really asking for more but you were upset or frustrated so there's no guarantee but I think when you look at 10 years you guys have been together not that that means you have to make it work with him it could be worth going to therapy not that therapy will necessarily fix it but I think it'll give you clarity meaning that if it's not going to work you'll feel more clear because even you calling me today means that you're not really sure And so I would suggest going to therapy, not because I know he's going to change or he can change. First, he has to want to, and then changing would be hard. And of course, we can't just say it's only him. We have to see what role you're playing in the whatever is happening in your relationship with him. Um, But I I think that for me, it's about the clarity. And that's something that I actually notice couples sometimes avoid going to therapy because I think they know or they're afraid that if they go to therapy, it'll become clear that they need to break up and they're too afraid to break up or too whatever it is, you know, anxious about it or don't want to. So they avoid it. Just like if you're afraid to go to the doctor for an x-ray or, you know, go to the dentist because, you know, your tooth is hurting and you're worried about they're going to recommend a root canal or extraction. Sometimes people do the same thing with their relationship. They're worried it's going to lead to termination of the relationship. And so they avoid going to therapy. So in your case, I would think about, you know, even the way you, it's funny you say your boyfriend, even though you, you say you guys broke up. So clearly you don't think of it as completely over if you're calling him that. We haven't. I'm sorry if I uh, 
gave you the wrong information. Okay. No, we haven't yet. We're still in the same house. I, I heard something like one month ago we broke up, but maybe I misunderstood. Oh, well, I, yeah, our problem started, you know, like it heated up pretty much in the last month. And we've been like just saying hi by being very civil, uh, you know, living under the same roof, watching TV and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it has not been uh, intimate or anything past high and by since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And then but he that, suggested therapy. He did. Okay. Yes, because I was, um, uh, I said, okay, I found, uh, you know, we can list the house with this person. So I was going full on. I was fine. I was moving on. And then he said, you know, uh, we have had, uh, you know, nine years together. I don't want to let that is let it go that easy and you know i still have feelings for you but and and that's what he says he says i have no solution to our problem but let's go to therapy <laughs> well and i mean that, it is a still not a good sign either it, I have no yeah solution. which is but that's okay because i mean it, does, it sounded funny to me too but if you guys had the solution or you knew it and it was easy, you guys would have done it already. So, I mean, he's kind of right. You guys haven't figured out. It doesn't mean there isn't one. And the way he said it made it seem like there isn't anything we can do about it. But um, there could be. But, you know, he'd have to make real changes. And so, or there would have to be, I don't want to just put it on him. And so I do want you to look at it as more a dynamic between you and him. But things would have to change in the relationship clearly. And the reason why I'm saying that is because, uh, if we look more closely, we might see that you might be afraid to get close to. I've seen this very often where people find someone who's distant and they keep saying, I want to be close. I wish he, usually it's he, but it could be he or she would let me in or let me be closer to them. But when you look a little bit deeper, you see that they themselves are afraid to get close. So they chose a partner who wouldn't be close and they wouldn't have to risk being close. And then two, they get to blame it on them. That I want to have a close, intimate relationship, but you won't let us. You won't let me. And we can always blame them. So we have to also be aware of maybe you're afraid of him changing too. There could be something there. I have thought about that as well. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm not even marriage material. Maybe I don't want to be t- you know, uh, nailed down into a relationship for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I have thought about that too. Maybe it is me. But uh, I don't know. My friends say you're so warm and close and friendly and sociable. And I have been into my marriage for 20 plus years. And, but what was that uh, marriage like? Was it how, how? No, that was a very different. It was a roller coaster ride. Okay. It was a lot of um, gambling and a lot of that you know every bad thing you can name it was in that yeah okay so there wasn't a lot of closeness there and also maybe there's a fear of getting close because you can get hurt again too so that's why i mean i know your friend's saying you're very warm and i'm sure you are but being warm and friendly and extroverted and you're saying he's an introvert and you're an extrovert doesn't necessarily mean the person wants closeness actually sometimes extroverts are more good at having uh more surface relationships but not very deep ones so to me just because someone is warm and friendly at a party and talks to everyone doesn't mean they want true deep emotional intimacy so i wouldn't just say oh my friends tell me i'm this way that to me doesn't mean a whole lot it means that you're that that you're warm and uh, a good friend and you can be you know sociable but it doesn't necessarily mean you're okay with 
real deep emotional intimacy. So it is worth looking at for yourself. And even the fact that you were together 10 years and you're asking marriage material, did you want to get married? And he would say no. Well, in the beginning, he wanted to marry and I didn't because I have a legal issue which was, you know, haunting me because of my ex. Mm -hmm. So I took care of that. But then not that I want to marry. He doesn't. He says, well, what do you want to marry? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, see, there's an interesting dynamic there where it's like you guys are playing this cat and mouse game where it's at when he wanted to get closer, you said no. Now, maybe it was just a legal issue. And then now when you wanted to get closer, he is saying no. You know, there's right. there's right. some kind of way right. you guys are playing. And that's why I'm saying I wouldn't put it all on him that if you guys aren't as close, it's only about him. But now at least on the surface, we know what you're saying is you want more from him as far as some level of showing you he cares about you, some level of romance, and you're not feeling that. Um, and that's a more explicit thing that can be looked at. But we do have to look at the underneath. So if you go to couples therapy, I think that's, to me, that's a good idea to get some level of clarity to face all these things. You might also want to think about doing your own therapy to recognize what's going on within yourself. Sounds great to me. I really appreciate all your input. I think you're ready for your appointment. Um, But I hope you'll (laughs) make a few more appointments, one with a, a couples therapist and also consider an individual therapist. But if he's open to doing couples therapy at least try it i to me it's worth trying to at least get that clarity and if you do move on you'll move on with more closure or you guys can make something work and have something better and that'll be good too that alone makes a lot of sense at least i'll be certain when it's you know one way or another exactly yeah well good luck to you you nice talking to you sure bye-bye so you know something that came up in talking with her um is about couples and their dynamics and things that happen in the relationship. Now, it is possible that one partner is causing or creating some problems. So I don't want to always say no matter what's going on, it has to be 50-50. That's not the case. Most of the time, especially not exactly 50-50, is usually not happening. And some things are much more one-sided. But at the same time, what we have to be aware of is that usually when we're in a relationship, it's very easy to see our side and to not see the other person's side or to see our good parts in the relationship and minimize their good and to minimize our bad and amplify the bad things that they do as being so bad. And so it can be good to take a step back and recognize, okay, if I'm so upset about something in this relationship, is it fair just to blame that on my partner? That's the first part. Is it fair to just say our arguments are bad because of him or because of her? What am I also doing in this process that contributes to how we're having these arguments? Because a lot of times people will say, for example, my husband or wife just shuts down and doesn't talk. And it's definitely true that some people have that communication style. They, because they get overwhelmed emotionally, they shut down or they use it as a passive aggressive way to get what they want or to show you they're upset or to try to manipulate you. They absolutely do that. But we have to also look at another aspect of this. How good are you at listening to your partner? Because what I've seen is sometimes in these relationships where one person shuts down, they say, oh, my partner will never listen to me. And then if you look or never talk to me. And then if you actually look at how their conversations go, the person is trying to tell them how they feel. But whatever they say gets judged or knocked down or made fun of or belittled. And so after a while, they feel like, what's the point of sharing what I have to say? So definitely some people shut down and they use that as a weapon 
or they manipulate and they do all sorts of things that are not good and that could be that com their communication style. But you have to also be aware of your side of the dynamic and your side of the conversation. Am I allowing my partner to share things with me? Is their shutting down just about them or am I playing some part in this? And hopefully the dynamic we approach the relationship with it also changes where it's not about me versus you. Am I good? Are you bad? Who's the winner? Who's the loser? Who's the better partner in this? But recognizing that we're working together and most of our problems are going to be created together. So they're going to have to be solved together too. Most of the time when you see a couple in couples therapy in the first session, it's as if they're presenting their case as to why their partner is bad and why they're good why they're the not guilty one and their partner is the guilty one and whatever's going on. And sometimes I joke that I should wear a judge's robe because I think they're looking for a verdict, that the wife is right or the husband is right, the wife is bad, the husband is bad, and then I you know, have a gavel and I say, that's it, and I made my decision, and you guys leave, and they feel like they won. But you're never going to win overall in that way if you're trying to win against your partner. You only win together, meaning that it has to be something where you come together by the end of it, not one of you feels better or worse, right or wrong. And I really think the mindset of approaching difficulties or conflicts from the mindset of looking at each person's contribution is better than trying to focus on blame. Who was bad? Who did something wrong? Who is wrong? Or who is a bad person? But trying to see how we both have contributed to whatever the situation is that we are in now. How did we get here? And we get here, not how did you drag me here? How did you create this problem? How are you the problem? But how did we get there? We got there together and we're going to get out of there together rather than you're the problem and you need to change. A lot of people come to couples therapy hoping that the therapist will say, okay, yeah, your husband is bad. He needs to change or your wife is bad. She needs to change and everything is going to be perfect. In some cases, it might be more like that, probably not completely black and white, but more that way. But usually it's about what the couple has done to get to where they are and also what the couple needs to do now together to get to somewhere better. And the other thing we have to look at when we see these issues in our relationship, and I was talking to her and it was good that she at least was at some level thinking at that level, was well, what about me maybe wants to create a relationship like this? Sometimes we might feel unhappy about a situation, whether it's in our relationships or other areas of our life, but we might not realize that actually this is our comfort zone or for some reason we prefer this to the alternative. So let's say you're at a job and you feel like, oh, you know, it's so unfair that I'm at this level, I should get promoted because I'm doing better work than so-and-so and you just live with all this envy and hatred towards that person that's above you and towards the boss. But then if we look a little deeper, we see you have some anxiety about having that position, that if they actually gave you that promotion, you keep saying you want or you deserve, you would freak out or not be sure you're good enough or bring up a whole bunch of other feelings that you actually don't like. So it's always taking a step back and recognizing even something that I don't like, or I at least on the surface and consciously even hate or dislike strongly about my life, is there some reason why maybe I'm preferring this or this is somehow safer or more comfortable for me than the alternative? So if you say, oh, my, my husband, or my wife never lets me get close to them, never lets us have a good relationship, never lets us be emotionally intimate. Well, ask yourself, is there a part of you that might be afraid to get close to? And it's easier to blame it on them and easier to be in this type of relationship than to actually have the alternative. Sometimes someone says, oh, I wish you were closer to me. 
and then they get closer and the person freaks out and realizes, actually, no, I kind of preferred it when you were a little bit apart. So we always have to be aware of those multiple layers and levels of looking at things. As I always say, you have to look at those three different aspects. One is look at your partner, who is he or she, and what do they have and bring to the equation and to the relationship and whatever is going on. Then you have to look at yourself, who you are, and also your own history and how that might relate to why you're being a certain way, why you're choosing a certain relationship, a certain partner, and all those things, your own factors, and the, the, the relationship between the two people. Because two people will create a relationship that itself has its dynamics based on who they are that can be a problem. So you might not be a person who generally has a trusting issue or issues with trust, but with a certain person, it might be about them or it might be about your relationship. It might trigger some things that make you... Uh, less likely to trust or have trust issues in this particular relationship. And lastly, I wanted to make another comment, as I did to her, about going to couples therapy. Now, of course, we think we're going to couples therapy and it's going to fix our relationship or it's going to keep us married. And, of course, it can be very helpful in, in strengthening a relationship and repairing damage and keeping people together or helping them build a healthy relationship. But oftentimes, just like going to see another doctor for other issues, you might get an evaluation and see that this is not savable or it's the wrong relationship. And we have to be ready for that, that a couple's therapy is not just about fixing any relationship and making sure it lasts forever. It's about really evaluating the relationship also and seeing if it's the right one. Are you guys a good match? Or has too much damage been done? Maybe you're good for each other, but if too much damage has been done in the relationship, sometimes you can't repair that. Sometimes the trust has been too broken or there's been too much disrespect or pain inflicted that maybe you, you can't get past that. Or you just might not be the right match for each other and that becomes more clear when you're uh, in therapy. You might realize you want different things and you keep wanting your partner to be someone else and realizing maybe at the end you should just be with someone else. And this is eventually the point you might get to. Of course, doesn't mean just because you're unhappy, you should get to that point, but that you should be aware that that's something that can happen when you go to couples therapy is that you might realize, okay, you know what? This isn't right. And it actually might help make the breakup more clean. One, you'll have more peace of mind that you understand what's going on and that you've tried everything and it's not going to work out. And you might even be able to do a more amicable breakups. Breakups don't have to be ugly and nasty. They usually are almost always are going to be painful, but it doesn't mean you have to be nasty to one another, and it could facilitate that process as well. Um, just before I go to commercial break, I don't also want to suggest that if you want to break up, go to couples therapy, and that's your way out. But I'm just making people aware that when you go to couples therapy, it's about evaluating and assessing the relationship as well as trying to make things better. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Yes. Oh, sorry. Hello? Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, actually, uh, uh, something happened to me just uh, in mid of July. Uh, I was very uh, fresh, very okay. Uh, even... The day that happens to me, I was on treadmill and I was running just 14 minutes. So um, one day suddenly my right arm had a problem and uh, I thought maybe it's because of uh, the uh, bad position of sitting. 
I went to physiotherapy and they said that uh, just you should do some uh, small training to feel this fine. Uh, unfortunately, one day I woke up, the day after that I woke up and then um, my legs uh, become numbness and it has so much tingling. Mm. Uh, I went to the doctor and they said uh, it's nothing so serious uh, in your face. Uh, maybe it's because of the stress that you have. But uh, I another day, the whole of my body become numbness totally. And then uh, this time I went to uh, emergency hospital. Uh, they have done the MRI and then um, they said that we need to do the uh, uh, lumbar puncture. Uh, to see what's the problem. So they found uh, something in my brain, and after the lumbar puncture, I was waiting for four weeks, and then uh, the results uh, get ready, and they diagnosed that uh, I have MS. Mm. Uh, after that, uh, they, uh, they, I was in hospital for two days. They gave me cortisone, then the numbness of my, of my body gone, but, but then they realized that I have MS, uh, they treated me and they said uh, you need just to come to hospital every six months and uh, we will inject you and uh, you will be fine, you don't have any problem. Uh, you will be uh, like as the normal people, you can leave, just uh, the difference is that you will be in touch uh, with hospital all the time. Uh, but uh, during that time, of course, I was kind of shocked, but uh, after... Um, three, four weeks, it was totally the mm, whole of this happening, uh, it was in two months. But uh, I was at home, I was really bored, I went uh, to my work and I talked with my manager and uh, they told me that you can start work, even 25%, it's, very, uh, it's okay for us that uh, if you want to come to work. I started my work, it's three weeks, I started my work. For 25 percent and uh, i really tried to be in a good mood and uh, it seemed like nothing really happened to me uh, everybody also appreciated that said oh you did it very well so you are very you have a good mood and uh, if you don't tell us you have ms it seems we don't understand that these things happen to you mm-hmm. but uh, unfortunately now it's almost one week I uh, I think uh, I don't care at all about my health also. About your what? Uh, about my health. About oh. my health. About my healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care what I am eating. I don't care what I am even drinking. So now I feel very down. So now it seems that I understand what happens to me really, because uh, it seems that uh, even I am not uh, productive at my work right now. I go because I'm kind of a social person. I go to work. I liked in the beginning. I really like to go to work, but now every day when it's past, I feel myself very bad because even I'm not involved in any of the projects, for example. Because for 25 percent, it's really nothing. Okay. And then when I come back home, I am very tired all the time. I am so exhausted. I know this is one symptom of this disease, but. Uh, I try to be very good. I try to get back to my normal life, but uh, I wanted to do it quickly. But unfortunately, I cannot. Well, let me let me. You said you just found out one week ago about the MS. Uh, 
Sorry, you said one week ago you got diagnosed with MS? Uh, no, uh, one month ago. One month I got ago. The okay. But it, all of these things happening, it was almost two months ago. But uh, they, uh, it takes four weeks time for them to uh, give me the result from mm-hmm. lumbar puncture from my spinal. Yeah. So that's why uh, after one month, then I realized... It was almost one month ago I got the diagnosis that I have the MS. Okay, but now I don't know what they told you to expect as far as how it's going to affect your life, but I know you're saying you want to be back to normal already, but it might be important for you to be a little bit patient with yourself. That it's not, you shouldn't expect everything is just normal after one month of getting a diagnosis and it brings up a lot of, I feel that you're almost trying to avoid it, like you're trying to just work and live life and be back to normal, as you put it, but not facing it and and really accepting and understanding what's going on. And you can't run away from this. You know, you have to first face it and accept it. And I don't know how much it is going to actually affect your life. I'm not a specialist, obviously, when it comes to medical things and MS and what has to happen in your life. But I get the sense psychologically that, yeah, you want to avoid that. And first, you might have to face it and even maybe be down or be sad about it and then accept it and then be able to move forward with however your life might have to change. But that might have to be the first step. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, even uh, these days I am not in the mood to talk with my parents also because already they want to, um, I understand, they really want to be helpful. They want to tell me uh, whatever they heard about the MS, whatever Mm -hmm. they talk with other people about MS. But I want to just uh, hang up the phone because I, even I don't want to hear more about the MS, honestly. Because I am overwhelmed by uh, yeah. these things. Okay, this is not something. You are a strong girl. I can I can do everything right now myself. I uh, it's kind of fun, but in deeper inside myself, I understand. Okay, for example, it's almost two months. I cannot do any exercise, and um, I can even. Just, uh, for example, uh, last weekend, I drank a glass of wine, and then uh, my body started to do the reaction. Mm. So I realized, okay, even these basic things, I cannot do it, really. Uh, yeah, but, and, uh, you know, really wh- I'm, I'm sure you are. I, I understand it. You know, trying, like I said, it is something that I'm sure will make you sad, and I want you to, not because I want you to be sad, but to really face and accept what's going on. And what might be important, there's a lot of things, obviously, that you might have to adjust, but you're saying when you talk to your parents, and it's, of course, they care and they might be worried, but if they're doing something that makes you feel worse, this is where it's important for you to set the boundary with them of, you know, what you're doing is hurting me. So for, you know, think about what you want to say and what you want. But if that's what you want, you can tell them, you know, when we talk, I actually don't want to talk about the MS. So please, if we want to have a conversation, either we have to not talk about the MS or I don't want to talk to you. And I know for a lot of Middle Eastern families and people just in general, they feel like they can't say that. But you have a right. And even, you know, I don't know much about MS, but I know stress can be parts of it, too. And especially, I'm sure stress is not going to help you right now. So you have to be very aware of the way that you take on stress and especially taking on other people's stress. So if your parents are worried and they want to ask you a million questions about this or give you all these suggestions and it's hurting you, it's going to be up to you to set that boundary to say, you know what, this is actually not okay in every area of your life and no matter who it is. And maybe the MS will help you feel like, you know what, I can say this, even though everyone has the right to say it, even if they don't have any, 
you know, illness that they've been diagnosed with, whatever the case may be, we all have the right to say, you know, I don't like when you do this, it hurts my feelings, or this is adding to my stress, it doesn't feel good. But unfortunately, in most of our families, we don't do that. We think if our parents want to tell us something, we have to listen. And if it makes them happy, we have to listen. But you have to really make sure you're taking even better care of yourself in every way. And a lot of that might mean saying no or creating some space with you and some people, or at least asking them to do things you like and not do things you don't like to make sure you feel okay. Yes, I understand exactly. And, uh, unfortunately, I wanted to move forward. Yeah. I wanted to go to work. I wanted to do uh, my, my real life again, my normal life. But I feel now I should, I think I should uh, backward again. Because uh, even this 25 person is not fine with, with me. I, uh, it's both I have Because right now, one aspect is that I am not feel good at work. Mm-hmm. And also, when I come back from work home, I feel very tired, and the rest of the day, I, I cannot do anything, even I cannot do, um, for example, go for swimming or yoga or something, which they said it's a good thing for you right now, mm-hmm. because I am so tired. So it's, it's almost that every day I am useless, not even at work, not at home. So uh, I feel very bad every day. Mm. Uh, well, I, I, I think it gets worse uh, nowadays, and even because before I was scared about what I am eating, but uh, I searched, okay, what should I eat, what shouldn't I, and nowadays I say, okay, I can eat whatever I want, because now it seems that uh, the um, shockiness and the, I understand right now what's happening really for me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people even like let's say they have diabetes or they get diagnosed with lung cancer, like they might keep smoking or eating bad things. It's not so simple to just say, you know, it's bad, so you should be able to do it. But also sometimes when we understand it, we can see maybe why we're doing that. And I think part of it could be that you're angry or you're not accepting what's happened and it's going to make it harder for you to even do the things to take care of yourself. So right now you're going through a big adjustment and transition. You're dealing with a new medical diagnosis that some of it you don't know how it's going to go. And of course, that's going to make you feel a little bit anxious about the future. But also even right now, seeing what you can and can't do, you're learning about it. And a lot of times it seems a little bit depressing even to see, okay, I'm not able to do something I did before or they asked me to do this and I can't do it right now. So I can understand that's going to be tough. And so as much as it's a medical illness, and especially since you're talking to me as a psychologist, I want you to really be aware of the psychological impact it's having on you. And a lot of times when people get a medical diagnosis, they go to therapy. They, of course, go to doctors for their medical uh, appointments, but they also need to see a therapist to deal with the emotional issues that are coming up with dealing with this new diagnosis, the the sadness, the pain, really trying to accept it. Because ultimately, I know you're saying I feel, I think you said useless or something like that. Your life might have to make some changes and the ways that you used to feel quote unquote productive, maybe you can't do or you have to do less, but maybe you find different ways to make your life still feel meaningful and feel important that might be a little bit different, maybe not even. I don't know how much this is going to affect you, but it's just something to be aware of that it's tough to accept this reality. It can feel very unfair, but we might have to recognize that we have to accept it and then make the best of what you have now, which I don't know what that's going to be, um, but that's really where you're at. And it's unfortunate. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you got that diagnosis and I can see how it's hard to deal with that and, and yeah. see yourself changing in these ways that doesn't feel good. Mm. Yeah, 
Um, but here also, so they supported. They, they, I have the uh, therapy. I have the physiotherapy. I have everything right now. But honestly, I am also suffering of these things. Every week in my calendar is just okay. Appointment with uh, mm. physiotherapy. Appointment with therapy. Appointment with um, uh, neurologist. Appointment with uh, even I am. Um, I know. The, so here they support really. They it's a. Uh, uh, medical team, so they are coming to my home even. So mm-hmm. they said, okay, uh, it's easier for you that we come to your home and talk with you at your home. And they, uh, it's very kind of them, but I am bothering also when they come at my home. And I, I know I should accept <laughs> these things, but then every day I feel worse about these things which is happening around me. Well, you know, it's a lot of changes, and yeah, you might even feel like you don't have your own space anymore. They're coming actually into your home. Of course, like you said, it's to do a good thing and to help you. But this is a very big adjustment you're going through to go from, let's say, not having any of these appointments and now having several a week and not knowing what to do. And they're asking you all these questions and maybe doing tests and things. This is really tough, what you're going through. So we shouldn't expect that you're going to be feeling so good about this. You know, there's nothing I can say to make you just happy or to enjoy this process. It sounds very difficult. But I hope, of course, that you will do everything to uh, help yourself both physically and mentally, and it might be difficult, but I hope you'll be able to do that. And I think at some level, and you're still in that process, I think it's only been about a month, you're still trying to accept this. You know, when we get some kind of big news like this, it usually takes some time. So even sometimes when you don't want to do the appointments or you don't want to do the things to take care of yourself, maybe it's your way of saying, actually, I'm okay. I don't need to worry about this or I don't need to worry about anything. And so it's like a reaction against that. And I think you're still in that process of acceptance. And that's going to take a little bit of time. And it might take, as I was saying, for you to face the sadness or being unhappy even a little bit more to really accept what's happening and then to create something better for yourself going forward and so with the therapist i hope you can focus on that i mean of course i don't want to interfere with therapy you're doing i never want to do that but something for you to just think about is thinking about have i fully accepted my diagnosis and what's going on yeah so i have also question regarding to my work so i don't know really should i continue for this 25 person or not or should i because here, actually, my doctor told me that uh, it depends on you, that I can write the sick leave, for example, that you can be for one month or mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. months, because it depends on your tiredness, how much you yeah. are tired all the time. So, but uh, right now, I don't know, because uh, honestly, um, in the beginning, I felt uh, very good, because I can, um, I get ready, it was some kind of, a, um, I excited to go to work, but now, um, I don't feel very uh, happy also to go to work. Yeah. Well, it's tough. Yeah. I think the reason why it's not easy to say what's the right thing is that, so on one hand, I would want you to stay busy or do what you can. But something that it seemed like you were sharing is that now when you go to work, because you aren't as involved and you're missing some things, it almost makes it more in your face that you're not who you were before or you can't do what you did before because now you're not up to speed on everything or you're not as involved in the project so it almost seems like it could make you feel worse that's why you have to really look at is the working making me feel good making me feel productive making me feel like things are still normal because usually when people go through a big change they really value the things that make them feel like life 
continues, life goes on, they feel normal, that can be good. But on the other hand, is going to work 25% making you feel like, look how much my life has been affected, look how, like, let's say, weak I am, that I can't do it anymore. That's the part where you have to figure out what is it meaning for you to go 25%. Is it good? Is it that you're feeling the 25% that feels good or more? Are you feeling the 75% that you lost that makes you feel really bad? And that's not something I can tell you it's right or wrong, but you have to really pay attention to what it's giving you. Is it actually making you feel worse or giving you something that feels really good? Okay. Yeah. But good luck. Again, I'm sorry to hear about the diagnosis. And I don't know what, you know, you're going to have to figure out for your life, but I hope you can make it not affect you in such a negative way. But for now, I can understand it's going to be painful and you might have to be ready for that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very sure, much. Sure. Nice talking Bye. to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, going into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. انجمن میراث فرهنگی ایران دومین کنفرانس سالانه خود را به اطلاع دوستان علم و Welcome back. In the last segment, I wanted to mention an event this Saturday, uh, October 5th at 6.30 p.m. at the Irvine Marriott Hotel. It's the Child International 2019 Gala, and I'm very happy and proud and honored to announce that Parham and I, my brother Parham Holakwi, will be doing the keynote address that night, or we're asked to be the keynote speakers. Rana Mansour will also be there. Um, it should be a wonderful night. So we're very happy to be involved at the Irvine Marriott Hotel. If you want more information, you can go to childinternational.com to get more information and hope to see you there that night. Um, but I wanted to talk a bit about helping others. I know it's very cliche and easy to say we should help other people we should do things that make other people feel good or we should pay attention to what's going on in the world and so i will say some of those very easy things that everyone does say because i think they are true but one aspect of it i did want to also talk about is how we tend to get discouraged to help others or to get involved because the problems seem too big and uh, sometimes they'll call this the collapse of compassion or sometimes they'll call it uh, compassion fatigue is actually more when I think a person who's let's say in a helping profession gets overwhelmed but the collapse of compassion can be a term that's used when we hear that a problem sounds so big we don't want to get involved we don't want to help so compassion can be looked at in lots of different ways but what tends to happen is if I see someone is suffering I feel something within myself that doesn't feel good and We could even explain this with things like mirror neurons or the ways that our brains can think. But I look at someone in pain and I can in some way feel their pain. And so in essence, to reduce my own pain, I want to help that other person because see, if they're then good, then I'm going to feel okay. But if they're not okay, I carry that with me. And so a lot of times we try to block that feeling. You're driving down the street or you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person in a very bad situation and you maybe don't look. 
or if you look, you try not to think about it. Or if you do think about it, you come up with some way to make it okay that they're suffering. You know, that person deserves to be homeless, or that person did something, or that person doesn't feel the way that I feel. You know, a lot of times people say, oh, they're they're kind of crazy or off anyway, so maybe they want to be. I've heard that a lot. Oh, you know, a lot of people who are homeless, they'd prefer to be on the street than actually to be housed. Are there some people that are that way? There are some, but the majority of people who become homeless don't want to be and would like to have housing and have things taken care of. But this is our way of deflecting from this negative feeling. And in this case, it can feel like a negative feeling that we can't do anything about. We don't think we can help this person or we don't know exactly what we can do. So we try to find ways to get away from that feeling. So unfortunately, what happens is when we hear about a problem that's also too big that we can't solve, we tend to rather than care more, care less. And this is why it's kind of like a paradox. So if I tell you one child is starving, you're going to be very sad and say, oh my gosh, that's so sad. Let's do something, especially if you can. If I told you in your office, if you're listening at work, you know, we just found out there's this child in the lobby, one kid, and he is starving and doesn't have food. I think everyone within a second would pitch in, either give their own food, give money to get this kid food. They wouldn't even think for a second about that. But then if you find out, you know what, there's 1 million kids that are starving, you might think, oh, well, now what do I do? Because the problem seems too big. You're not sure that you can solve it. It seems too big to save. And now what's interesting is even though before you were willing to help one person, now you don't want to even help one person because you feel like it's not going to solve the whole problem. Or maybe it makes you face the problem even more by going to that one kid knowing there's a million behind him or her who are also suffering. So it's easier to do nothing at all. Or we prefer to do nothing and avoid it rather than face the situation. So we can understand this response, almost in, in a way a natural response or a human response. Another way we see this very strongly is that if we tell you about someone, that's one thing. But if you see one picture of a kid who's suffering, it pulls on you in a different way and creates this sense of empathy. And actually, I think it was Paul Bloom had a book against empathy I talked about last year, saying how sometimes empathy actually can mislead us. And he was promoting rather than being mean and not caring, but trying to have what he called rational compassion. And he makes an interesting argument about that. Um, but if we see a picture, we're going to care a lot more than if we don't see that picture. And that's part of who we are, that it brings up more feelings for us. The words don't do as much as seeing the image of someone that we're helping. But what I wanted to say is that we have to try to resist this response that we can have, that when we see a problem is too big or when we're afraid we can't solve it ourselves, we give up. Because the truth of the matter is almost every big issue in the world is nothing that you can solve on your own or even expect to solve in your lifetime or do much about. And so if you think of it that way, either I have to be able to solve the whole problem or I should do nothing at all. Most of the time we're going to do nothing. Okay. There's billions of people in this situation or millions of people in this situation. There's nothing you're going to probably do that takes away that billions of or millions of people that are suffering, but that doesn't mean we should do nothing at all. We Rather than thinking we have to solve the problem completely, we have to always think about what actions am I doing to help. And so when that response comes up of like, well, what difference does it make? We have to realize this is just our brain's way of trying to protect us from having this negative feeling and feeling like because I can't help completely or solve this problem, I shouldn't do anything at all and try to give up. But don't let yourself do that. Realize that every small step you take helps. 
anyone who's ever helped you, let's say if you were grieving the loss of a family member who died, um, they came and gave you support and it felt very good. Now, were there also millions of people around the world who are suffering the same way you were? Of course, but your friend couldn't do anything about that and that's okay. And so they just helped you. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't meaningful or it wasn't significant. And we have to try to just do our part in what we can do. Whatever it is that we can do to make things better, that itself is very valuable. And that's all we can do is our part. We shouldn't think we have to solve it all. And maybe this comes back to something about our brains and how they're wired to be in a smaller group. We're used to being in a group of 150 people, maybe hunter-gatherer tribes. So really, if anything was going on affecting 150 people uh, within that group, probably you could figure it out or solve it together. So everything was in a way something we could solve. But now we're connected in a more global way. And so we are exposed to problems that are much bigger on a scale that is much different than what we're used to computing or comprehending. And so it's harder for us to understand how to deal with that. And I think sometimes we give up. So I hope people will always do something, realize that you're not going to solve it and that's okay. You're not supposed to solve any problem completely yourself, but that you can do something. And so there's many ways you can help. Of course, I hope you'll join us uh, this Saturday at the Irvine Marriott Hotel. Saturday, October 5th at 6.30 p.m. for the Child International 2019 Gala. Uh, but of course, if you're not here, you can help in so many ways. Giving your money can be one way, but I always recommend for people to do something that gives of their time. Uh, in some ways, it's a selfish proposition because you feel so much better with what you do. Even if you give a small amount of time, that connection will help you feel good and um, I know most people, if you ask them to do community service, maybe they say, eh, I don't know. But also their second answer is usually I don't have time. And so time, of course, is a real thing. We, you know, I don't want to get into a philosophical debate about if it's a real thing, but it is a real constraint that we can have in our lives that you have 24 hours a day and that's all you're given no matter who you are. Um, but like most things, if you want to do community service, either you make it part of your schedule in your life or you don't do it. It's the same kind of thing about exercise, which I started the show talking about that topic. Uh, if you tell yourself, I don't have time for exercise, you can just tell yourself that and never do it. But really, the truth is that you have to make the time for the things that matter or make the time to spend time with your family or to connect with your husband or wife or whatever it is. And so helping others community service is the same way. If you just wait till uh, the timing arises, you'll never do it. And that's what people usually will say is like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do it someday but you probably won't do it if you make it that way. Just like working out. Oh yeah, when I find time, I'm going to work out. No, you have to block it off into your schedule, make it part of your routine, or it probably will never happen. And I hope we can also maintain that mindset and realize that as much as we might think uh, what we do won't make a difference or we're afraid that if we can't solve a problem, we should just give up completely and not do anything at all. We have to resist that temptation or that mindset, which is almost natural for us. or we tend to go there, fight against that and realize like, no, if I can do anything, it's up to me to do what I can do. All we're responsible for is what we do, not completely solving a problem. When you look back at your life, you're just going to look at what you gave, what you were able to contribute to whatever issues it was, helping, serving, whatever that is. It's not going to be based on did you completely solve this problem or that, but just you doing everything you could. So I hope we all will continue to do that, helping others in whatever ways that we can, and hope to see you this Saturday. 
All right, before I wrap up the show, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. All right, thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Ghazala who was here in the studio helping me as always on Wednesdays. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.